parasha, parashat Hayi Sarah, right? The, this week's parasha, the life of Sarah, begins with the death of Sarah. And so um, there's, uh, of course, always some nuggets that I find when I get into it. And um, no matter how many cycles we go through, it always seems like that. And it's a joy and a privilege to be able to stand up here and share some of that stuff that I find with you. And this week, there is a lot of really good midrashic connections and messianic expectations and just all around good stuff in this, of course. Um, Parashat Sarah is uh, Bereshit chapter 23. It's found on page 22. We're going to start there at the, just the beginning, opening few lines of this week's parasha. <clears throat> Bereshit chapter 23, or Genesis chapter 23, the first couple verses, the opening lines of this week's parasha go like this. Sarah lived to be 127 years old. These were the years of Sarah's life. Sarah died in Kiryat Arba, also known as Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn Sarah and weep for her. And so Rashi explains that this sudden death, it seems to be, because this comes right after the binding of Isaac, which we just read about last week. When explaining why Sarah died, the Midrash is... The Midrash in the first several um, chapters, uh, several parshat of uh, Genesis is just really amazing stuff. All kinds of explanations about this and that. And they love to um, just muse and um, contemplate on why some of the things, you know, all the details that are left out. Why did Sarah die? Rashi explains that after the binding of Isaac, Sarah was told about what happened, and that's, she died of the shock of that news. Now, the Kumash teaches that it was actually Satan that told her the bad news, and the Midrash really gets into this. They say that Satan crept up to the tent of Sarah and told Sarah, listen, Avraham is uh, taking your son Isaac up to the mountain and has bound him and is going to sacrifice him. So she runs out of her tent, very distraught. She has some friends that are giants, so she runs to her giants and asks her giant friends, these giants, you can peer far off into the distance, stand up tall and peer to the distance and see if you can uh, find my husband and my son. The giants say, okay. And so the giants stand up very tall and peer off into the distance, and they find Abraham. They say, oh, in a far-off mountain, I see Abraham, Isaac. Isaac looks like he's bound up and... He's laying on a pile of wood, and Abraham, he has, uh, looks like he has a knife in his hand. He's holding it uh, about to uh, sacrifice Isaac. With that bad news, uh, her breath left her, and she passed away. Now, did that really happen? Probably not, but these stories are valuable because they have uh, spiritual gleanings that are available to them, and taking them literal isn't the point, but... Midrash and that sort of thought, that's a mindset, and it's a way of thinking and looking at Scripture that really is like a, a fabric that's woven, that's carried um, through thousands of years of looking at Scripture in different ways and making connections from the Torah to the prophets to their different writings, even to the New Testament. We'll see an example of Midrash being cited by the Apostle Paul this week. 
So Sarah has passed. It wouldn't seem right to move on right into Isaac and Rivka without giving her some honor. And so we're going to look a little bit and meditate on Sarah this morning. And um, the connection that I saw that I really enjoyed actually began last week, um, beginning of last week's Parsha, which is just a couple pages back, in chapter 18, verse 9, introduces um, the concept of Sarah's tent. 18, verse 9, let's see, well, we'll start at verse 6. Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly, three measures of the best flour, knead it and make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd, took a good tender calf and gave it to the servant who hurried to prepare it. Then he took the curd's milk and the calf which he had prepared and they set it all before the men. And he stood by them under the tree as they ate. And they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, there in the tent. She's in her tent. He said, certainly I will return to you around this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. This is, of course, great news because Sarah is very old and she's barren. She's never had any children. So she's getting some great news here in her tent. There's lots of commentary on this. Um, there's commentary I saw from the depths of the Torah that note that Sarah's tent occupies an important place in Jewish and apostolic mysticism. Now, when I say something like apostolic mysticism, sometimes people feel a little, well, what are you talking about here? An example would be like we read Isaiah chapter 53 and we see Yeshua all over that. There's all kinds of connections there. That's apostolic mysticism in a nutshell. Nothing nefarious or weird about it. It's just simply connecting things in a way that isn't always um, completely obvious. And so when we look at Sarah's tent, there's a great example of this, not in Isaiah chapter 53, but in Isaiah chapter 54. So let's look at that for a second. Isaiah chapter 54 is found on page 522 of your uh, Stern's Pew Bibles, or if you have a different version of Scripture, Isaiah 54 is somewhere near the middle of your Bible. Isaiah 54. Sarah's not mentioned by name here, but I don't think it's going to be too difficult to see the connection that's made. Isaiah 54, verse 1. Seeing barren woman who has never had a child, burst into song, Shout for joy, for who has, uh, for you have never been in labor. For the deserted wife will have more children than the woman who is living with her husband, says Adonai. Enlarge the space for your tent, extend the curtain of your dwelling, do not hold back, lengthen your cords, make your tent pegs firm. For you will spread out to the right and the left, your descendants will possess the nations and inhabit the desolated cities. Don't be afraid, for you won't be ashamed. Don't be discouraged, for you won't be disgraced. You will forget the shame of your youth. No longer remember the dishonor of being widowed, for your husband is your maker. Adonai Sefaot is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He will be called the God of all the earth, for Adonai has called you back like a wife abandoned and grief-stricken. A wife married in her youth cannot be rejected, says your God. Briefly, I abandoned you, but with great compassion, I am taking you back. I was angry for a moment and hid my face from you, but with everlasting grace, I will have compassion on you, says Adonai, your Redeemer. For me, this is like Noah's flood. 
Just as I swore no flood like Noah's would ever again cover the earth, now I swear that never again I will be angry with you or rebuke you, for the mountains may leave and the hills be removed, but my grace will never leave you and my covenant of peace will not be removed, says Adonai, who has compassion on you. Storm-ravaged city, unconsoled, I will set your stones in the finest way, lay your foundations with sapphires, make your windows shine with rubies, your gates with garnet, and your walls with gemstone. All your children will be taught by Adonai, and your children will have great peace. In righteousness, you will be established, far from oppression, with nothing to fear, far from ruin, for it will not come near you. Any alliance that forms against you will not be my doing. Whoever tries to form such an alliance will fall because of you. It is I who created the craftsman, who blows on the coals and forges weapons suited to their purpose. I also created the destroyer to work havoc. No weapon made will prevail against you. In court, you will refute every accusation. The servants of Adonai inherit all this. Their reward for their righteousness is from me, says Adonai. So, of course, here there's some things going on in Isaiah chapter 54. Obviously, Isaiah is a prophet trying to drive his people back into um, repentance, warning them of uh, things that are going to happen to their country and their city if if they don't repent. But he mixes up things here a little bit in this chapter. He begins with connecting Jerusalem to Sarah. That's what this chapter really does. It starts out very obvious that there's a lot of that you're a barren woman, you've never had a child. It's kind of, it's not that big of a stretch to see Sarah in here. And so there's this connection with Jerusalem and Sarah in this passage, right? The city and Sarah, they're both barren, uh, but life will be restored to them. They both have dwelling places now. She's got a tent. Jerusalem has a city, but they'll need to get bigger in the future for more space. Um, so again, Sarah's name does not occur in this passage, but the connections easily picked up, and the sages mused about this and wrote a lot of midrash about it. This connection is something that is picked up with uh, Jerusalem and Sarah here in chapter 54. We see this connection picked up by Ralph Shaul or the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4 is on page 1456. Um, it'll be starting in verse 21 if you are going to get there faster than I am. But page 1456, 1456, gets us to Galatians chapter 4. Uh, we'll start in verse 21. It says, he's kind of letting some guys have it here for a minute. He says, tell me, you who want to be in subjection to the system that results from perverting the Torah into legalism. He's basically talking to Gentile converts here is what he's talking about. Don't you hear what the Torah itself says? It says that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and one by the free woman. The one by the slave woman was born according to the limited capabilities of human beings, but the one by the free woman was born through the miracle-working power of God fulfilling his promise. Now, to make a midrash on these things, um, it, it says allegory in other versions, not midrash, but... Now, to make a midrash on these things, the two women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai and bears children for slavery. This is Hagar. Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Yerushalayim, Jerusalem. She serves uh, as a slave along with her children. 
but the Yerushalayim above is free. And she was our mother, for the Tanakh says, and here's a quote from Isaiah 54, which we just read. Rejoice, you barren woman who does not bear children, break forth and shout. You who are not in labor, for the deserted wife will have more children than the one whose husband is with her. He continues, for you brothers, like Yitzchak, are children referred to in a promise of God, but just as then the one born according to the limited human capability persecuted the one that was born through the spirit's supernatural power, so it is now. So he's talking about Isaac and Ishmael there. Um, Nevertheless, what does the Tanakh say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for by no means will the son of the slave woman inherit along with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. So here in Galatians chapter 4, you see Paul connecting Jerusalem and Sarah once again, and obviously citing Isaiah 54. Um, This is just common Midrashic thought. This is what is floating around in the water in first and second uh, century Judaism. This is stuff they're hearing because this is, uh, it's pretty easy for us to see it, and it was easy for those to see it too. There's also another Midrashic hint here in chapter, in verse 29. Verse 29, it says, but then just as the one boarding according to limited human capability, Ishmael, so just as Ishmael persecuted Isaac, the one born through the spirit supernatural power, so it is now. So he's talking about um, Ishmael persecuting Isaac. Now, where does he get that idea? Because that idea is not found anywhere else in the Bible. That's not something you can flip back a few chapters to and um, find, you find some strife between Sarah and Hagar, but there's nothing in there about this uh, Ishmael persecuting Isaac. Well, there is a whole lot of Midrash about it, and there was a whole lot of that Midrash floating around in the water back then. Some of it goes like Ishmael's bragging to Isaac, listen, I'm better because I got circumcised when I'm 13 and you were a little baby and didn't have a choice. Lots of stuff like that. Sure, is it true? Eh, Hard to say. Probably not. But that's kind of where these ideas are coming from. You see uh, evidences of Midrash right here in uh, many of the writings in the New Testament. So Midrash helps prove some spiritual lessons. It's an aid, if you will. And maybe a short digression on the applications of Galatians here. Much could be said um, on the way this book gets really overcooked in many theological kitchens. Um, Just the commentary on my NASB is, it's hard to be charitable about it. Um, But um, nevertheless, no matter how many logical fallacies we can come up with, uh, it's, you know, navigating some of that takes assistance and contemplation We have many resources available to those interested in them, but back to Sarah's tent. Because Sarah's tent makes an appearance at the end of this week's Torah portion. We're going to go back to the Torah portion. We're going to close out here this morning. Our last uh, scripture reading is going to be from Bereshit chapter 24. It's on page 24. And this is, uh, we're going to get back to Sarah's tent. This, of course, is... Isaac is just meeting his bride. Sarah has well passed, and her tent has been empty for some time. Bereshit chapter 24, we're going to start in verse 59. Um, So they sent their sister Rivka away with her nurse, Avraham's servants and his men. They blessed Rivka with these words. Our sister, may you be the mother of millions, and may your descendants possess 
the cities of those who hate them. Then Rivka and her maids mounted the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rivka and went on his way. Meanwhile, Yitzchak, one evening after coming along the road from uh, Be'er Lachai Roy, uh, he was living in the Negev, um, went out walking in the field. And as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Rivka too looked up. And when she saw Yitzchak, she quickly dismounted the camel. And she said to the servant, who is this man walking in the field to meet us? And when the servant replied, it is my master, she took her veil and covered herself. The servant told Yitzchak everything he'd done. Then Yitzchak brought her into his mother's, Sarah's tent, and took Rivka, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Thus, Yitzchak was comforted for the loss of his mother. Now, the Kumash tells a Midrash developed about this. It says, as long as Sarah was alive, a lamp burned in her tent from one Sabbath to the next, the dough was always blessed, and a cloud signifying the divine presence hung over her tent. When Sarah died, those blessings ceased. But when Rebekah entered the tent here, all those blessings returned. So the messianic expectation can be drawn out of this. Think of the early barren years of Sarah's life represent the first exile to Babylon. Sarah did conceive and had to expand her tent, and the Babylonian exile did end, and the people came back to Jerusalem, culminating in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Yeshua, of course. Now, the death of Sarah um, represents the current exile, and her empty tent here represents a barren Jerusalem. But in the last 50, 60 so years, we see that changing. This means something. We should be probably readying ourselves for uh, uh, Isaac and Rebekah-like return. Isaac bringing Rebekah into his mother's tent foreshadows Yeshua bringing in his bride back to Jerusalem. The lamp will burn again, uh, blessing will return in abundance, and the pre uh, presence of the Lord will be seen and known by all. So let us keep uh, learning and applying Torah to our lives. This is how we can best prepare ourselves for Yeshua's kingdom and find ourselves in Sarah's tent in Messianic Jerusalem in the kingdom. May that be soon and in our days. Shabbat Shalom.